Bordy. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. You might have seen recently a story that went viral. The woman who for three months had a baby bird nest in her hair. Of course, the story behind the headline is a little bit more nuanced. So nuanced that in this episode, Hannah Bourne Taylor, nature writer, conservationist and the author of Fledgling, the book behind the story, actually reduces me to tears when she tells me the heartwarming story of how lonely and confused in Ghana, she rescued the little finch who in many ways actually ended up rescuing her. Hannah Bourne Taylor is on the Big Travel Podcast. Do you feel like you've in any way become known as the woman who let a bird nest in her hair? (laughs) Yes, and I think um, some might think that that was a bad thing. I think that's delightful. I want to be associated with birds. I'm obviously on a mission to engage everyone with birds. And so the idea of being sort of crazy bird lady that fills me with joy um i like i fully embrace that <laughs> you, you are the crazy bird lady and i mean i saw i saw it in the in the press when it you know when it was out and i didn't quite realize it was you at first but i think yeah the crazy bird lady where should we where should we start how did you become the crazy bird lady Oh, well, um, obviously, Fledgling, my memoir, really documents that emotional roller coaster. Um, actually, most people haven't connected that viral story of the bird nesting in my hair with the fact that I've written a book about it. And it's so much more than that, you know, 60 second clip of this mannequin finch. Um, actually, there's another bird as well, a swift, which um, is very relevant right now because swifts are returning to Britain to breed as we speak. So they're pretty awe-inspiring birds. So I, I love to talk about them too. But um, I suppose the finch in my hair um, <laughs> really sums up sort of the end of a very, very difficult journey for me mentally, um, having moved physically from central London to rural Ghana and basically just going a bit bonkers, uh, having a massive identity crisis until the birds came into my life, which is why I want to be associated with them because they represent joy and happiness and positivity and, I've, you know, little, little um, adversities I've had to overcome. So, yeah, they speak volumes for that. What was the journey that got you to Ghana? And I don't mean, you know, the plane journey. How did you get there? How did it, how did it happen? Tell us why you ended up in Ghana. So I was 26. I was just living my best life in London, or so I thought. Very busy life, social and work commitments all the time, as most people in in London uh, lead that kind of life. And then my husband got a job and he got a job in the capital city of Ghana. Um, And I thought, great, adventure time. Um, And actually it was the best time of my life, It just uh, not to start with. (laughs) Um, So turned out that my idea of being a sort of exotic expat wife uh, context situation sort of thing wasn't exactly what I had planned, mainly because I wasn't allowed to work just with the um, the permits that we had. And again, I thought that was going to be great. What I didn't realise is not having a work and moving to a completely different country meant that firstly, I had no touch point of a friend turning into five or a commute that would sort of get me out of the house or a routine. Most of all, I didn't have a purpose. And that lack of purpose made me realise very quickly that actually the layers of society, the layers of social and work commitments that I'd had in London, when they were stripped away, 
I had no idea who I was or what on earth to do with my time. And I dissolved into what felt like nothing. I sort of suddenly was living this blank life with a sea of time that was sort of drowning me. And um, I've always been quite an anxious person. And um, I've also um, suffered from OCD as well. I'd never spoken about actually until I wrote Fledgling. Um, and all of those anxieties and stresses just flared up like a sinister jack-in-the-box. I think actually people can relate to this, whether they've got severe anxiety or OCD or not, especially because of COVID lockdowns. So, you know, that that same overnight change of routine, blank space, uh, lonely existence. You know, I had no friends. I had no one all day. I, was, I wasn't speaking to anyone all day for days and months on end. Uh, so I think actually people can relate to that, even if it's not quite the same situation. So, yeah, that was the, that was the context. Um, then, and then, uh, yeah, went a little bit bonkers, uh, saving a lot of ants. I don't know whether you want to get into that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it reminds yeah. me a little bit of that sort of hot sense of ennui. It reminds me a little bit of, uh, well, back in the olden days when we didn't have technology and contacts and things going on all the time, but also books that I've read, such as, um, Gerald Durrell, you know, my family and other animals, I loved that as a child. And, you know, the time that certainly I spent as a child with nothing to do, you know, lying on the floor, looking at an ant or a a bird. And it's also almost that your modern life was, was stripped away from you. And you're a lot younger than me. And, you know, so maybe you've never had that, that downtime that, that I had as certainly as a child, you know, trying to make your own, your own fun and entertain yourself. I think that was a really good point. And actually, Fledgling then reveals the power of that. I suppose it's a form of mindfulness that being able to get into the present and engage with something in front of you, which actually nature provides for us all, whether we realize that or not. And actually, as a child, I had an incredibly good foundation of what you've just said, mainly because of my parents. So we didn't have a TV. Mobile phones didn't come in until I was about 17. So really, my whole childhood was unaffected by these modern challenges. I think that our genuine, cha- you know, green time has changed to screen time. Um, so yeah, I did have that green time um, as a kid. And my dad had this incredible way where he would lace these magical facts uh, that would distinguish one species of bird or snail or whatever it was from the next. And I have a real passion for facts. So I would collect these little uh, nuances of these things around us. And, and I loved that. And so that actually comes into play um, in fledgling with the birds. But for the first couple of years, I was stuck in this sort of sick coloured, empty apartment in the middle of the capital city. And the layout's very, very different in Accra. It certainly was in 2013 when I moved. And it, it wasn't easy to walk around. There were no sort of strings of cafes or a sort of hub of a city that we might expect from Britain or, or even Europe or America. And so those cultural differences um, just initially really had a negative effect on me. I just didn't know where to begin. What, uh, I, having read the, uh, a bit of your book, I was absolutely captivated from the first chapter. And do you have the book there, by the way? Have you got a one to yes. hand? Yes. Oh, the finch. Could you, there's the famous finch, not in your hair. Could you read to me the first paragraph? Because I just thought it was absolutely beautiful. Oh, putting me on the spot. Uh, Yes, I will find it. So it's chapter one. So the prologue is set in England and most of the book is actually set in Ghana and then it comes back to England. Uh, So there is that connection. It's all through the Swifts because they they uh, they spend their lives between those two continents. And so they are anchor for home for me. So this is chapter one. 
3,817 miles south of England stands my house in rural Ghana, a place so different it might as well be another planet. Ghana is the country closest to the geographical centre of the earth, at the intersection of zero degrees latitude and longitude, made up of forests and vast stretches of low-lying vermilion plains. It's beautiful, and I can, it just sort of transported me there. So, first of all, you were living in a, in a flat, you said, in the city. And, and, and then yeah. what happened? How, how, did your, how did your life come about? I mean, I've never been to Ghana. I do have friends that have, uh, have been there and lived there, but I've never been. So, having been to Addis Ababa, to Ethiopia... I would say that it's it's unlike anywhere I've ever been in my life. It had magic and colour and difference. It was, you know, I've been I've travelled all over the world, really, but not to a, a lot of um, large African cities, only around the outskirts, if that makes sense. And and when I went to yeah. Ethiopia, it felt like nowhere else on earth. Did yeah. it have, have that vibe? Is it the same thing in Ghana? Yeah. Yeah, so obviously cities are all different, have their own identities. Um, but I only stayed in the city for two years. And in the end, I lived in five years. Um, and I've only just moved back in uh, rural Ghana. So three hours away from the city in a really remote landscape. And, and so that chap, uh, that beginning paragraph is sort of trying to set the scene. So imagine, um, guinea grass, really tall grass, about 11 foot tall, uh, just for miles and miles and miles. And then a really wide, wild river meandering through it and, and, pretty much flat the whole landscape and then you have these incredible mud hut villages and and small little dwellings around but but it feels so far removed from western life really um and i really like that actually i liked the wild element i mean most people when they think of africa they think of east africa and the safaris and the plains and these acacia trees and lions and all these things and actually it wasn't like that at all west africa is very different it's very humid uh, climate so it's up to 90% humidity really sweaty basically um and between 30 and 40 degrees and 12 hours of sunlight every single day because it's on the equator um and so very very obviously different we didn't have the lions but the snakes pretty deadly snakes uh, hanging out on the doorstep and these incredible birds and incredible insects actually incredible vertebrates like these amazing um ants these weaver ants that use their larva to um create nests uh, by by their uh, silver threads that that stick uh, leaves together and so i suddenly became gerald durrell as you as you mentioned earlier um basically i spent all my time connecting to the wild landscape and that was a real tonic for me because I was so lonely. Um, I was trying to tap into the non-human world. And now I've, now I'm addicted to that. So I'm trying to spread the word. Um, but yeah, it, it is a, a wild landscape like nothing else. If you haven't been to West Africa or, and, or Ghana, because obviously every country is different, then it, it read the book <laughs> because it's, it's a real sense of place. It's, I've really concentrated on the vivid elements, the small details of a little territory just where I lived. I lived in a, thatched bungalow right on the edge of the grasslands so immersed within this non-human world what was your daily life like what did you do you know the contrast that you must have had between London and lunches and parties and what job were you doing when you were in London so yeah I was in branding so I was a copywriter for a branding consultancy so I thought something like that. Different. I had you, I had you in PR in my head. I thought that you were doing something like that, as a lot of you know young women do in London. And um, yeah. so what, how did your how did your daily life change when you 
ended up in Ghana. So, so the the wild landscape just lured me in. Basically, I I decided that my purpose would be to connect to nature, and that consumed me, but in a really good way. So I got to know the different birds um, without without trying. I was just there for so much of my time during the day. I really engaged with that. And so my, my husband was running uh, a sports foundation, uh, which is why we were in the rural landscape. And so actually I did end, end up becoming involved with that. But in fledgling, it really just concentrates on on the time that I spent intensively within nature because that became my whole identity. And then when I uh, rescued uh, two birds, one after the other, uh, that intensity just <laughs> uh, immersed me, basically. So tell me about the the birds that nested in your hair. Okay, so um, the finch, who has become quite famous, he's the ambassador for all bird kind, I think, across the world. He was my second rescue. The first rescue was a swift. Uh, Swifts do not ever intentionally land on the ground. Um, So to have a bird like that in your hand and having to figure out how to keep it alive is a an incredibly surreal experience and, and virtually impossible. That's probably the hardest birds to try to raise. So that's one story. I don't want to give too much away with that, uh, but I'll, I'll move on to the finch. The finch was a very different type of bird to the swift. So finches are flock birds. They're a bit like sparrows, these bronze winged mannequin finches. So imagine a sparrow, but half the size and a very gregarious flock bird. So flock birds, they, they, they stick together on purpose. It's a survival technique because they're so small. They're basically the walking, flying snacks of the wild, harsh, harsh, harsh world um, that they live in. And, and their lives are measured in weeks and months, really. They can live to three years, but it's unlikely that they'll ever survive their first year. So when I found this fledgling mannequin finch, it was because his uh, little grass nest um, was blown down after a really big storm because there are these rainy seasons in Ghana that take Huge thunderstorms uh, descend every day, really, for three months. And there he was on the ground. His flock had abandoned him. It turns out, actually, um, that his flock would never have reclaimed him. But I didn't know it at the time. So I waited a whole day spying on him, not wanting to intervene because, you know, actually, it can be a really bad decision to try and meddle with little ones, um, little wildlife. It's better not to if you can help it. But I thought uh, by dusk, the cobras would eat him. And I just couldn't bear that. Uh, so I collected him, having no idea that that one moment of compassion would translate into a thousand hours together. So three months, 84 days, and that we would become so inseparable that my life would change for him. Um, and the, the, the ironic kind of journey to this is that I made a promise, firstly, to keep him alive. And I didn't know how to at the time. But secondly, and most importantly, to return him to the wild. So he was never going to be my pet. But in order for me to return him to the wild, we would have to come incredibly close. So he would feel like my own baby, you know, my feathered child. So, yeah, pretty emotional um, turn of events. <laughs> the the nesting in the hair is a little bit, the, the way the, head, the viral headlines sort of said it, it was a little bit like you had the bird in your hair all that time. But the bird was just every now and then fiddling around with your hair, retreating to your hair. Yeah, so... Um, there's this thing called imprinting that a lot of baby animals and birds do, which is basically instinctively latch on to a mother figure, even if it is a different species, it turns out. And so he accepted me, this little tiny finch you could fit. You know, he's about, about, about as big as my little finger. So he fitted them in my hand really snugly. And um, yeah, he, he thought I was his mum pretty much instantly, which was actually really important. 
he was on my body all the time because he only had me. So his instinct is to be around his family. I was his entire family, his entire world. And so I have also waist long hair. And actually, in fairness to the, to the headline, to defend him a little bit, um, the bronze winged mannequin finches, their whole life revolves around this really tall grass that I mentioned before, this, this 11 foot high guinea grass. So they eat the seed, but then they also make nests out of the stems of the grass. And so it was very convenient and very instinctive for him to practice on my hair. So he would often be rummaging around in my hair and, you know, uh, abseiling um, and, and curling it around and snuggling down on my collarbone and going to sleep. And this was extraordinary for me because it meant that at the end of every day when he often did this, when he was really sleepy at dusk, I had this sort of purring, chirping, wild creature that had been born high up in a mango tree uh, and he was safe with me. And actually that, that the hair story is so much more than this kind of sensationalist, stunty kind of gimmick, because actually through that act that he would do all the time and through the calls that he had. So he had different calls when he was hungry, when he was tired, when he was scared, when he was busy, when he was content. So this content call that he had when he was in my hair kind of just shrunk all the differences between me and this tiny wild creature. And, you know, so much of the time, I think humans just sort of separate us from the wild, especially something that we can't really relate to. These vast differences are so obvious between, say, me and this little finch. But through him and through his actions and through this hair nesting thing that he did, you know, I could see that like me, he sought comfort and reassurance. And that also he had a particular way that he wanted to live his life. He had this particular routine that I could really relate to. And actually, I was really striving for myself. And so all those vast differences shrunk so that there were none. And I, that is sometimes quite a hard thing to illustrate, which is another reason why I wrote the book, because I feel like so many of these creatures are completely misunderstood because they're not even people don't even think about it in that way. And um, he had a personality that lit up the room. He was goofy, just like me. He was quite clumsy. He was hilarious. So uh, like when he wanted food, which is pretty much all the time, he would whip his wings out because it's a technique that they basically block out their siblings. Uh, he didn't have any siblings, but it was an instinct to like make sure that he got the food, not his siblings. Um, and then he would um, sort of put his head up really like defiantly and to have this really shrill alarm, like, feed me, feed me. <laughs> and so there I would be like feeding him. <laughs> and he would sometimes topple over and he'd be flat on his back and he'd sort of rummage around really quickly, get back up and do it all over again. And he just kind of, he, he kind of had the air of a, an opera doing an encore or, or a, a matador having a tantrum. Like he was just hilarious. And uh, so he endeared me to him completely. What did you feed him? Yes, I fed him all the time. So that was really, really tricky. So, um, I've had him termites that I collected, um, which is really ironic because back um, before I had met the finch, um, the one of the ways in which my OCD manifested itself was me becoming completely and utterly obsessed with the act of trying to save drowning insects from a pool that we had for a time. And actually, I still stand by that. I believe every life matters and every life counts. And actually ants are incredibly similar to us because, you know, for example, if an ant loses their scent trail and can't find their way back to the colony, they die because they are, they, they become exhausted from trying to find their own. And I was so isolated. I could really relate to that. But actually the problem was that my OCD took it to a completely irrational disruptive level so I'd be patrolling the swimming pool uh, at night time I couldn't leave the swimming pool I turned the swimming pool into this for like from a smug cliche into this just ridiculous nightmare where I was 
filling it with uh, plant frond, you know, palm fronds and rafts to try and help the um, the things not die. And there, then I was then having to kill termites in order to feed this life. And I'd had to do that with the swift as well. And so that was ironic and, and gave me a different perspective again and actually helped massively with my OCD because I couldn't be irrational. I couldn't, I couldn't carry out compulsions because I actually really had to focus on the job of keeping this bird alive and, and trying to figure out how to raise this bird, which as a human is quite hard to do. You were there with your husband and I know you, you talk a, a bit about trailing spouses, which is, I think, a, a very interesting theme. Having met quite a few trailing spouses around the world, I once spent um, three months in Bangkok and spent a lot of time with the men who were working, who were all doing these like really business, busy jobs. And I'm, I'm really not saying this is your husband at all. Um, and it, because it's Bangkok, you know, in the early 2000s, it's probably a, a different place and also I'm not putting your husband in this light at all. But they were working very, very busy hours and then going out drinking afterwards, you know, having all these like great social lives and busy. I mean, busy and important. And the wives just didn't really exist. They used to come in every now and then and they'd have young children. And, you know, sorry to say that some of the men were, you know, not really, they're sort of like off. It's Bangkok. You know, they were off doing things that I would, I found incredibly distasteful, but, you know, you smiled. And back in those days, it was before the Me Too movement, you smiled and simpered and, you know, got along with them as well, if that makes sense. Um, so I've had some sort of exposure to that sort of trailing wife or trailing spouse um, thing. I'm not saying that that's, that is your husband. Things have changed and you're in a different situation. But it, it, I, am, I imagine it smacks to me of a little bit of a, um, you know, unless you have that social circle, it's almost like being a 1950s or 60s housewife that ended up drinking gin and taking uh, all sorts of uh, prescribed medications and, you know, like a bit of a, a madman type of thing. I realise you weren't in that situation, but I'm, I'm not sure what my question is. But yeah, trailing spouses. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So firstly, your description is horribly true for so many expat cultures. You know, that culture of busy, important men and drinking men and the women sort of just being there or even not there. Sometimes they're just not in the picture at all. Actually, credit to my husband, didn't marry someone like that. Uh, but I did marry someone who's a workaholic who had changed his whole career and was in a new culture and a new job as a CEO. And uh, so he was just never there. His capacity for non-work life was not there for for a great period of that time actually became instrumental to um helping me rewild the finch and and was a massive support on the peripheral but yeah for, certainly for the first couple of years he was absent he wasn't drinking actually he was just working the whole time and didn't have any friends himself but because he was working he didn't he didn't have that like a purpose it was completely he couldn't relate to me that was the problem actually it was the fact that he like no one i didn't have anyone that i could relate to then actually a horror Probably I did start meeting the other trailing spouses, but I didn't quite fit the mold. I was a lot younger. I didn't have children and um, there was a disconnect. And that I, I write about that in my book as well, because I had thought these women, some of whom had come from England themselves, would sort of welcome me in with their sort of warm bosom and, and sort of help me through it because I was the novice. You know, a lot of those women had been overseas for their whole lives. And actually, I got the opposite. I, I felt incredibly unsupported by these groups of very intimidating women who would uh, uh, interrogate me without even asking who what my name was and, and um, would accuse me of being the same age as their own children and not accept 
accept that actually I was an adult and was trying to fit in with them. So there were some that were stars in my life that became a complete exception to that rule. And they really, really helped me. But the first sort of introduction to that world where I thought it would be a comfort and a support actually then just made me feel more alone. And actually through the whole seven years of being there, um, firstly, I realized how transient this expat life is. And so that actually you'd make friends and you'd break them because they would move. And so I think there was a lot of barriers up for the women. And I think a lot of women would not admit to themselves, but also to others that they were not coping very well. And actually, as I got deeper into friendships with just a few very important important women in my life now through those shared experiences we realized that we were going through the same experiences but were finding it really hard to talk about them and so another reason why I wrote the book is because of this concept of isolation and severe loneliness and not really knowing how to communicate that and also as a as a uh, a group of people in terms of the anxiety group of people of which so many people fit into that in, in some level that's again people don't talk about these mental health issues and obviously mental health is everyone has mental health it's just good or bad or or, or middling and so yeah all of these sort of they all layered up until until they were one thing and yeah so that expat life that sounds so luxurious and people were jealous of at home but then they stopped they stopped asking me how my life was they assumed it was a certain way and I didn't know how to admit it actually wasn't like that at all uh, so yeah I think a lot of trailing spouses you know you're out there you're not alone <laughs> um, but it's really difficult to um, connect on that level that mental level I think. What was your lowest point when you were there? I think my lowest point was probably just realising that I didn't know who I was without all the layers of my life. And actually, I had felt like an odd one out for, for my whole life. Um, and I had escaped from my my teenage years into university in London. I had done fashion photography actually as a way to escape. You know, fashion is an escapist sort of situation. Didn't fit in there either. And actually, so my 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 low was realizing I didn't know who I was. My high was realizing that I'd actually found it when I was a kid through this connection of nature that you mentioned earlier and and being exposed to that again and redefining my life with not sort of the rat race of, OK, I want a promotion. OK, I want a better boyfriend or a better house or or something materialistic. It was actually, OK, I want to redefine my life in so that I have capacity to look and pursue joy and what makes me feel alive. And those might be just moments. They might be one or a small series of moments in every day. But how do I access those moments that I can access present time, uh, embrace mindfulness uh, and not call it mindfulness, just engage in something that isn't making me stressed or making me think about the future or or multitasking or, or, or dealing with my inbox of emails, anything like that. And that was the Finch. The Finch taught me that. The Finch taught me that simply because he, as the bottom rung of a food chain sort of situation, he couldn't afford to dilly-dally, daydream, worry, stress about the future. He had to live his life in the moment at all times, otherwise he would get eaten. <laughs> and so obviously that's a very stressful situation. But what I took away from that is here is this bird who knows it's scared because it would sort of flinch every single moment. Actually, if you look look at sparrows, you know, in our gardens now, they flinch all the time. That They're always together. They're chirping together. They're not chirping for fun. They're chirping to tell each other, okay, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here all the time. So they they live a very anxious life. And yet he was 
happy and content and busy and focused. And so he was a huge role model for me, which also might sound crazy, but it absolutely was true. And so, yeah, I want that. And uh, that's, so that came only because of the low, you know, that that's the, you know, sometimes lows give us our biggest lessons. And if we can push through it, we can get the best out of our lives. That's how I see. And I'm cynical as well. I'm a really pessimistic, cynical person, but I think that's true. How did you let the Finch go emotionally and logistically? How did it happen? Okay, well, emotionally, I probably need therapy forever because I will probably cry at this answer, but I'll give it a go. Um, I love making people cry on the podcast. I knew I had to sever the bond. I knew that that would be a betrayal because he wouldn't know that I was going to do it. Three months is the time I, I had from the start. I'd been told by an ornithologist it would probably take about three months to, to get him ready for the wild. And then I would have to release him. I couldn't just release him just like that. So for out of those three months, I spent two months basically stalking his family <laughs> with him. So we would walk through the grasslands and he would flit from my shoulder to my head to my hand. And he never really wanted to be away from me. Um, so it was not a case of trying to make sure he would stay with me because he would escape. He didn't want to leave me. That was that was the whole point of our relationship. And that was what made it successful, that that trust element. Um, so yeah, he would he would flit around me and I would have to sort of teach him how to be a finch, <laughs> uh, which was hard being not 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 being a finch myself. Um, so I needed to teach him how to watch them because that's how they learn the little babies. They learn from watching their family around them, how to eat grass, how to uh, escape when there's danger. That's those fundamental basic survival instincts and so as a result I had to tune into the landscape in order to help him tune into the landscape himself and so I found out all these routines of all the birds the dangers of the raptors the snakes the thunderstorms every element that could kill him um, or or make him lose his flock which would be another reason why he would die so it was pretty epic Um, and I noticed that his plumage was starting to change. So it was uh, going from brown to this very smart sort of zebra zebra stripe sort of action um, with these beautiful emerald uh, feathers as well. And he was also just getting instinctively more confident. He was becoming a stronger flyer. He was flying away from me more. So he'd go up to the top of our uh, thatch roof and he'd sort of cock his head as though, you know, are you coming, Hannah? And I would just wish, 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 wish I could go with him. And that's when I started to realise I had to let go. And so the only thing I'd ever done to try and protect myself emotionally was I'd never named him. I wanted to remind myself that even though there was this Finch who loved me or, or certainly was instinctively loving me, um, you might want to not humanise it, but it's pretty pretty impossible not to humanise the situation. Uh, I knew that he wasn't mine. He never belonged to me and he certainly wouldn't belong to me soon. And that was always my promise. I didn't want to be selfish, but that became harder and harder and harder because not only do I love him more and more and more, but I also realized the threats he faced like more and more, because as I tuned into the landscape, I saw how absolutely harsh the wildlife wildlife is. And, and again, like fledgling might come across as a sen- sentimental story, this kind of gushy animal loving story. Actually it's harsh, wild reality and, and these big uh, adversities that both of us had to, to overcome. So eventually it was time for him to go. I knew that instinctively because it all became about instincts anyway. Everything kicked in. That that element of protection was the biggest instinct of all. And 
I knew that he wouldn't fly from me. I knew that even though he was now getting more comfortable with the flock, the flock had basically accepted him. They've actually sort of accepted me through ignoring me, which is the biggest compliment ever. Uh, I gave the task to my husband, which is why I'm really grateful for him, because the Finch had accepted my husband as sort of a family member, but hadn't had the same bond. And so, yeah, one day I left um, and I said goodnight to the Finch as though I was just saying goodnight like normal. We had this whole sort of lullaby routine, which sounds a bit ridiculous, but it was my favourite, most precious tender moment ever every night where I would stroke his head and he would loll his head sideways. And if I stopped stroking too soon, just like maybe you do with a child who sort of wake up with a start and, and want to continue uh, the stroking until he until he fell asleep. So I did that. And then uh, I walked away and I got on a plane back to England, knowing I'd probably never see him again and uh, cried all the way back on the plane. You know, the air stewardess was asking me whether I was okay. The immigration guy asked me whether I was okay. I've documented in this in the last chapter of my book. I wasn't okay. I was crying. And then I was thinking, oh my God, like, I don't know how to live now that I'm not with the Finch anymore. What do I do now? And there is a happy ending. He did fly free. It took him a few days. He was a bit confused, poor thing. Um, but when he did eventually decide to go with the flock, he flew. Yeah, I'm crying now. Um, <laughs> he flew high with the flock. Actually making me cry. I'm crying about <laughs> somebody else's birds. <laughs> oh. oh, no, yeah. that's so sad. It's well, bittersweet, you know, because that's what you want to happen, don't you? So, yeah, I mean, it was a badge of honour for me. I'd actually achieved something. And for a little life that felt really lost, I had then not only managed to put my life on course, for, thanks to him, but I had managed to keep my promise to that bird who I really felt like, you know, if I wasn't going to do that for him, no one no one was going to help him. Um, so, so you knew that really you, it was your husband was reporting back what happened? Mm, yeah, he phoned me and um, I was um, in an Oxfordshire meadow near my house with a dog um, who's also in Fledgling, who I'd rescued off the street as a homeless dog. And I'd managed to get him back to England. So I'm a bit of a rescuer. There's also a puppy that we rescue from a ditch just before we leave in the book, too. Both of them are right next to me now. Um, and yeah, Robin, my husband, is also called Robin, by the Robin. way, so he's aptly <laughs> named. Um, he, he, he called me and said... And by the way, so he's ex-military and uh, used to be an Olympic rower. He's like really um, not emotional. He's not like me. He's super practical. He was an engineer, like really kind of, yeah, not not like me emotionally. And he choked up on the phone and said, he's done it. <laughs> um, and, yeah. <laughs> and I was, I basically just kind of looked up at the sky and just, just imagined my bird flying and, you know, the symbols of freedom in birds, we, we've, humans all the way through our whole really life on this earth have always associated birds with freedom and obviously literally that bird had gained freedom but also so had I through this bird so yeah oh goosebumps (laughs) was he ever seen again I guess you wouldn't know would you yes I do know and it's in my book and that's why I really like my book because obviously as a reader you, you sometimes you invest in time to read books and sometimes Let's be honest, the ending can be a bit rubbish or it can be a bit of an anticlimax or it can be kind of left to like mm, vagueness. And this one isn't. So by the time you get to the end of the book, if you ever do refledgling, it's you've come a long way emotionally, like highs and lows to the nth degree. And so the end bit, um, don't want to give too much away. But yes, I did see him again and it is documented in the ending. And actually, not documented in the ending of the book. I saw him four times, I think, in total. And um, what an extraordinary, uh, 
emotional. <laughs> it can't oh God, worse. I'm so glad. I'm so <laughs> glad your husband didn't release him and then he was pounced on by a lion or something. That would have been a terrible yeah, ending. That would have been that would have been bad. And actually, there are a couple of incidences that are uncannily similar to that in Fledgling, which really reflect the lowest points of that wild reality. Uh, but this, it didn't happen to the finch. But you rescued the finch and the finch rescued you. Yeah, it, absolutely. That sounds like the mother of all cliches, uh, but I'm happy to uh, stand by that. That's what happened. I I returned him to the world and returned and saved his life. And in return, he saved mine and replotted my life because now everything I do is for him, which also sounds just like a kind of Backstreet Boy song or something. But like, you know, fledgling my book, that is his legacy. I'm now writing another book about how we can all connect to the nature in our doorsteps in Britain through my personal journey of eco-anxiety and how small actions can make a difference. And that's all because of that little finch in my hair. <laughs> you came back. So what happened? Did the, the job come to an end? Did you decide that uh, it was time to come home? So we were only ever supposed to be there for about three years. So seven years later, um, when you're dealing with um, how how to prevent cerebral malaria and all sorts of other really quite extreme things, it becomes quite stressful on your body, but also on your mind. And I think we we're always wanting to settle down. And uh, for example, with uh, my dog Shoebill, and, and named after another bird, and Loon, <laughs> named after another bird, we had got him back to England because he almost died out there of some parasite diseases. And so then I was in this weird thing where I was going from my husband to my beloved dog, who also was the saviour of mine. And I just didn't want to be split the whole time. Um, so Robin kind of made the hard decision to leave a job that we'd both invested in. I ended up doing gender equality documentaries and investing quite heavily in uh, the children that we were working with as well. But yeah, it felt like time to come and sort of settle into our English identity, which ironically, I found really hard. This last year, we've only been back just a year, and I found this last year a real struggle, which is hilarious really, because fledgling documents how hard I found it to move. And now actually... I'm finding it really hard in reverse. And actually, that's another thing that these expat people all over the world have to deal with. And I think this, going home can be harder because people think it's not. So that expectation is different. So again, that loneliness and that change of identity can have a real toll. But luckily, because I have the Finch's sort of motto, be more Finch, is how I see the world now. I got up and got on with it. And that's really helped me. That's one of the very interesting things about travel. Going on holiday even makes you see your own world differently. But long term travel, when you live somewhere, it does take adjusting. I remember I, I grew up in Spain and we, we moved there as, as children. And my mum says she'd cried for the whole first six months through we there. Absolutely, you know, mm. hated it. And then it becomes home. Yeah, I mean, I can relate. That's what I did. I cried every day. And then when I got back to England... I cried every day. So it, it's an emotional adjust, adjustment. And um, I think I think most people go through it. Um, how, are you, how are you now? Are you going to stay here for the time? Yeah, I mean, there's no, I mean, we never, it was the thing about Ghana was that Robin spontaneously was offered a job. And six weeks later, we were there. So I was plonked unceremoniously into this completely new life. It was never, we were never going to be seasoned expats. It was never the plan. So I suppose never say never. And, um, you know, Africa, I think most people that have fallen for Africa say that it sort of st stays in your skin. And, and maybe that's the case for all sorts of different countries. You know, Costa Rica, best place I've ever been by a country mile. 
but Africa is something just just so special about well Ghana I, I can't I suppose I can't speak for Africa it's a huge continent with many different cultures but Ghana yeah feels like a part of me is missing and that's yeah maybe maybe <laughs> did you travel when you were there Traveling yeah, well, I traveled all over Ghana. Um, so I know Ghana, I went to the different rainforests. I traveled on behalf of gender equality and I also traveled on behalf of pangolins, actually. Um, so again, there's a, a pangolin rescue in fledgling and pangolins are the world's most trafficked animal. They need our support more than any other animal in that context. And, um, so I got to, rescue a pangolin and return it to Atua forest. And, and this forest is one of the most incredible forests on earth and it needs protecting. Um, so there was quite a lot of that as well. Um, and, and that helped me understand more about the environmental issues and nature and actually how we're all connected. If we don't necessarily understand that and how important it is to try and notice and care a little bit more. So again, that's feeding into my whole kind of conservation angle, I suppose, it is not a political angle. It's not a big and angle. The whole idea is, you know, in the specific lies at Universal, in one fledgling, the whole wild, and in each one of us, the ability to protect it. So it's really about just noticing, noticing nature. Amazing how such things can change you, isn't it? Just one yeah, little one tiny decision. Bird. One tiny <laughs> yeah. bird, one little decision to go somewhere, one tiny bird can change your whole life. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask you my last question now. My last question is always about music. Ooh. And if I had to ask you, which I am asking you, so I am asking you to choose one song that reminds you of a memorable time and place of travel. What is that song and what is the memory you can think about? Of, of travel? Any travel at all. Yeah. But it might be Ghana in this case, but a song that you were listening to that you, that got you through some tough times that you've been chilling on a beach to the anything that reminds oh, you. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, Go on, this is, uh, this one, I've got two, but they're, they're very different. One is not connected to Ghana or the French at all. It's empire of the sun, uh, walking on a dream. And I was in Greece and, um, I was sailing for about three weeks and I listened to it on repeat um, and it makes me feel really happy. I really like that style of music. I don't really listen to music much because it makes me feel really emotional. And yeah. I sometimes I don't want to feel emotional, but that one's really cool. Yeah, totally but the one, that. I suppose the ultimate one for me is a bit odd perhaps, but it, it, I would listen to it when I was lying on the floor after I had had a whole day with a finch and it kind of just helped me. It's Nimrod by Algar. Obviously that's associated with Remembrance Sunday and the military. However, it was actually written for his wife and it's a love song. Um, and it's incredibly intense. It's epic. And also, I suppose, because of the association with both love, which might be lesser known, but also death, it kind of feels and certainly felt at the time very resonant because I was dealing with life death situations on a daily basis, on a minute by minute basis, trying to figure out how to keep this bird alive and how to, how I would be able to help him survive. So uh, profound, maybe a bit much for this podcast. I don't know, but yeah. No, Nimrod. absolutely not at all. Oh, Empire of the Sun. <laughs> so you're, listening to Nimrod, you'd be lying there at the end of your day trying to keep this bird alive you'd be lying there with the finch yeah well yeah the, the, either the finch would be so the fit I didn't want to play music to the finch so I'd either listen to in my headphones or maybe I would have put him in his little bedtime box 
and just having a moment just to decompress. And um, I suppose I just wanted to remind myself that I was actually doing something really, really epic. And sometimes it felt so silent because I'd just be a woman, a sweaty woman out in the bush with this little random bird on me. And no one, no, like I was just alone. I, I wasn't, no one was there being like, oh, well done. You, you've always got there. Uh, it was such a silent mute experience in so many ways from a human point of view. And it really wasn't, I really needed to galvanize myself. You know, I really need to make sure that I was finding it acutely aware of how important it was from his point of view because this is his life we're talking about it's a creature's life you know so yeah Nimrod that is an amazing Final answer lot. to the music question <laughs> wonderful answer to the music question thank you so much for coming on the Big Travel Podcast oh thanks so much for having me and I hope everyone is inspired to go to Ghana and uh, you know let me know I can give you recommendations and indeed buy the book yeah That's buy the book thing. buy the book yeah <laughs> And Hannah's book is called Fledgling and is available everywhere now. Thank you so much for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. We'll be back very soon with more life stories through travel. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.